Bao Yu had, from early childhood, manifested a streak of morbid sensibility, which being brought up in close proximity with a nature so closely in harmony with his own, had done little to improve. Now that he had reached an age when both his experience and the reading of forbidden books had taught him something about worldly matters, he had begun to take a rather more grown-up interest in girls. But although there were plenty of young ladies of outstanding beauty and breeding among the Jiao family's numerous acquaintance, none of them, in his view, could remotely compare with Dayu. For some time now, his feeling for her had been a very special one, but precisely because of this same morbid sensibility, he had shrunk from telling her about him. Instead, whenever he was feeling particularly happy or particularly angry, he would invent all sorts of ways of probing her to find out if this feeling for her was reciprocated. It was unfortunate for him that Dayu herself possessed a similar streak of morbid sensibility and disguised her real feelings, as he did his, while attempting to find out what he felt about her. Here was a situation then, in which both parties concealed their real emotions and assumed counterfeit ones in an endeavour to find out what the real feelings of the other party were. And because, when false meets false, the truth will oftentimes out, there was the constant possibility that the innumerable little frustrations that were engendered by all this concealment would eventually erupt into a quarrel. So Abbot Zhang, uh, Abbot Zhang takes the the jewel from Baoyu's, from around Baoyu's neck, and he takes it outside to show all of his followers. Um, and when he returns, he has not not just the jade pendant, but also a whole heap of other kind of trinkets and bits of jewelry and things. Uh, and this is what all of his followers have kind of spontaneously given in admiration of the of the. I guess of the the jade itself. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, choice items, just for the privilege of looking at the jade. It seems like a uh, maybe a bit of an unequal exchange. It's almost like a, a bit of tribute. <laughs> yeah, on their part, from from people who are not materially wealthy. But most of these things, um, Bayou actually doesn't really really want, right? Um, they're little kind of nick. They're little like knickknacks. Yeah. And, things. yeah. Um, and so he initially, he initially says, "Well, why don't they be? Why, why don't we donate them to the poor?" Uh, which is exactly as kind of clueless and condescending as it sounds. Um, and the, the abbot says, "Well, I think that would kind of be a bit pointless. Um, why don't you instead make a, a monetary offering okay. for the poor, and keep these trinkets for yourself, and you know, maybe." Examine them more closely and give them away here and there. And um, he also makes an interesting comment. Abbot Zhang says um, in the Hawks translation, these things are, after all, 
they might not be of you know a special value, but they are uh, objects of virtue. And so, if you give them to the poor, they won't have you know they they might not their value is not simply their like exchange value. They also have this kind of this um ritual value. And actually, what Hawks has rendered um, objects of virtue. He actually he spells it uh, V I R T U. In the original, it's simply Gjn uh, Tmin, um, which like just seems like a few objects of yeah, like like utensils, you know. Um, but I, I guess the implication here is that these are not simply like everyday utensils. They're utensils that, on account of their um, connection with ritual. They've they've um, attained an extra layer of, of meaning, yeah. And there's kind of a tradition of using chi mean to um, denote not simply like tools, but um, like ritual tools. And so you can find that you know in the Li Ji, the book of ritual. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, it, okay. It's kind of it shows you the the underlying like theory of value that's being. Um, interpreted and interrogated in this moment yeah i think i think you're right this is these objects are things that possibly don't have a high price but have a high value or you know have a substantial value which is not necessarily reflected in any kind of yeah valuation in a kind of market sense and so Baoyu is kind of struggling with that uh he, he's not entirely unaware but his sort of comments um, or his suggestions failed to um, take into account this, you know, these layers of meaning, these layers of value. Hmm. And maybe that's just down to youth. Uh, yeah. Or maybe yeah, it's just because he comes from this kind of spoilt background, who knows? Uh -huh. uh, nevertheless, though, should we talk about... Do you want to talk now about... Um, there's one item among these... Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. Um so it's it's mentioned a little later in the chapter, but since we're on the subject, it makes sense to talk about it here. So one of the items among these is rather significant. It's a um, uh, chilin. Hawks has it as chilin, which mm -hmm. is simply an artifact of another romanization system. But uh, in 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 like standard yeah, Mandarin, so. it would be chilin, which is a kind of mythological mythological beast. Um, sometimes compared to variously uh, a unicorn or a giraffe. Yeah, yeah. I, th that's the story, isn't it? That once a giraffe was brought to the imperial court and people thought this was a, a, they, it was a real flesh and blood chilling. Um And this has a, a long pedigree. Um, it's mentioned in the oldest uh, Chinese, uh, dic one of the oldest Chinese dictionaries, the Shouwen, uh, where it's... Um, it's the Shouan reads, Chilin uh, Ren uh, Shouye. So literally, like, Ren is like the Confucian term for um, benevolence or humaneness. It's one of the major uh, Confucian concepts. And so it's a, like, a Ren Shou, like a benevolent beast. Um, and then, the, and then the, it goes on to say, Mi Shen Niu Wei Yi Jiao. And so literally, like, it's something like a moose body and a like a, an ox tail and one horn and actually the the chi was said to be the male 
uh, counterpart, mm. and lean was said to be the female counterpart. So chi lean refers to the whole uh, like the whole species. Uh, and there's a few references oh, in the really old Chinese documents of like it's usually mm. in these sort of ideal settings, and this is kind of um, this beast is like a sign of, um, of, of that you're in paradise. I guess it's an auspicious uh, creature. And um, Bao Yu has seen it before, but he can't place it. And, and Bao Chai, who's of course always on top of things, she points out that uh, another main character, uh, Shi Shang Yun, who we haven't talked about too much, uh, but she's going to be more important as the story progresses. Uh, she comes to visit the, the Jack Lan uh, somewhat regularly. Um, and she has herself a, uh, a Chi Lin much kind of similar to this one just a little bit smaller uh and so upon learning okay. that yeah pendant, Bao yeah. Yu becomes very taken with uh this trinket uh item and he wants it for himself and there's kind of this little scene where like Dayu sees it and she like interprets this you know in various ways and so he does this kind of like uh compensatory like well would you like it you know oh if you don't like it well i'll take it then it's 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 very kind of after the fact extremely unconvincing and of course Yu, you know she's not <laughs> yeah say what you want about Yu, but she's not stupid and mm. and she's not gonna uh she's not gonna take this another secondhand gift after uh those terrible um rosary beads he tried to pawn off on her from the from the the Prince of Beijing. <laughs> uh, so another another kind of uh, classic uh, Baoyu blunder, but also kind of a, a reflection, I think, of his connection to, and maybe even on some level, interest in uh, Shishang Yun. So Daiyu makes this kind of slightly sideways comment, right? Where you mentioned that Bao Chai remembers that it's uh, Xiang Yun that has this uh, Chilean like a pendant or emblem and um Tantron observes that Baochai is very observant and you know she remembers everything and then Dayu says <laughs> well perhaps not quite everything but she's certainly very observant where things like this are concerned um and I guess that's kind of talking about this you know we mentioned before Baochai has this gold locket with a an inscription inside um, and it kind of matches somehow the uh, jade locket that Baoyu has. Um, and there's something of a kind of like prophecy or mythology that she will marry someone who has a jade to match her gold. So I think this is kind of Daiyu's own yeah, yeah, uh, insecurities definitely. coming out about that, I suppose. So that's kind of a, a, a kind of a passing scene, but I think it's pretty important. Because now Baoyu is going to have another um, matching item with another uh female acquaintance another cousin another cousin yeah hmm. so can we talk um for a little bit about the plays yes so we, we mentioned earlier that they've come to the temple to watch to make this offering and to watch some plays and the the plays are rather than in, as in previous chapters where the the characters themselves have been able to select the ones that they want to watch because this is part of a kind of religious ceremony, they're chosen by the gods, scare quotes, but basically through a kind of random process where I think they're all kind of 
they write down the names of lots of different plays that can be performed and they're all shaken around in a jar and then the first three to come out are the three that they watch and this is you know a random action having ascribed to it the intention of you know gods or spirits right and this is probably also going to reflect our own novel right this is very common when you have a like a a play within the play it's it's impossible for that not to reflect it's like it's one level up you know you you have to be a really bad author to like have a play within the play and have it not somehow uh transfer meaning you'd have to like really work at it i think <laughs> yeah have it yeah have it as a completely <laughs> random event with no significance to the plot whatsoever that'd be quite an accomplishment be, <laughs> honestly i'd be in <laughs> i would be in awe of that yeah um okay so the three plays are uh first bai she ji so the the record of the white snake uh mm-hmm. then man chuang hu um the the f- literally the full yes full bed tablet but really it's like uh mm-hmm. in the hawks he calls it a heap of honors and then finally um nan right. so the dream of the southern branch right. in hawks just the south branch so i want to just talk through each of these in turn um there are i did a bit of research on this first play the record of the white snake and there is a play by that name from the Qing Dynasty by a um an author named Meng Xia. Um and the story is about uh, a Qing official, uh Liu Hanqing, uh who is forced to leave home with his wife because of the oppression that they suffer at the hands of his stepmother. Uh and on the road they meet a white snake who is the son of the dragon king. Uh, oh, sorry, Long Wang rather, a a kind of water spirit, uh, but and the sun is in snake form. Um, and then one of kind of two things happen: either Liu drowns, tries to drown himself due to his poverty, and the snake saves him, or the snake is drowning and Liu saves the snake. Uh, I couldn't quite work out which way which way around it was, um, but basically, as a result of this, or Leading on from this, he goes on to be a you know provincial official, and returns home in triumph. Whereupon he you know fiercely criticizes his stepmother for her actions, and the family is reunited. Uh, and there is a there's a folk tale called Bai Sha Zhuan, uh, so the story of the white white snake, along fairly similar lines. Uh, but what's told in the Hawks is something completely different, um, which is that the story is about the emperor uh, Gaozu the founder of the Han dynasty. So China's second dynasty, founded about 200 BC. Um, And how his rise to power began with him decapitating a great white snake. Um, And and, and that is what it says in in the chapter we're reading at the moment. So there's this bit of a disconnect between the play that they're supposedly watching and the actual real-life play that exists under that name. However, there is um, a Yuan dynasty play um, by a playwright called Bai Pu, um, known by a different name, Han Gaozu Jan Bai She. So, um, the the Han Emperor Gaozu decapitates the snake, and in that play, yeah, the first Han Emperor who was born Liu Bang, he, 
he was on the road with his followers and they encountered a great white snake uh, and he his followers were scared but he came forward and cut the head off the snake he went on away um, and slept and in the meantime his followers returned to the spot where the snake was slain and there they found the snake was was not there but there was an old woman crying that her son the son of the white emperor who had been turned into a snake had been slain by the red emperor uh, so they dismissed this as nonsense and approached to grab her at which point she disappeared into thin air and then they returned to Liu Bang and told him this story which he recognized as a sign that he having slain the snake was the red emperor this kind of like mythical figure and people began flocking to his banner because he had this like mythical kind of almost kind of like prophecy type event portending his rise anyway so it's presumably this one that the author is referring to yeah you know that's interesting yeah but i guess regardless the the first play is the story of rise to power um and actually whichever one of the of the snake stories uh it is right the 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 theme is kind of broadly the same which is overcoming some difficulty to rise to greatness i guess right that that is the takeaway right this is the right it's just three stories um yeah the, as you said the first one's the rise to power the second one is the the second one yeah is the is the the peak yeah so this one the the, the heap of honors is is about this tang dynasty general guo Ziyi. and so on celebrating his uh -huh. 60th birthday he was visited by his seven sons and eight sons-in-law uh, all of whom were were government officials and they each carried a kind of tablet I think this is something that they bring as part of the paying of the respects. And when they had all stacked all of their tablets on the, I think, the table at the foot of the bed, it was so full that they basically couldn't fit. Um, and so the the idea, this is, this is a depiction of uh, someone in really the absolute prime of their, you know, he's reached 60, he is a great kind of official in his own right, or rather he's a great general in his own right, and all of his issue, male and female, um, have like attained the kind of greatest things for themselves as well um mm -hmm. and so yeah so it's it's i guess kind of a depiction of really great achievement i suppose that was the impression i got um and then the third one is the what like the the realization of illusion right that's the um the kind of the uh the, the buddhist or the taoist um realization that you know all of these fame fortune uh academic achievement uh it's all been an illusion right mm -hmm. the 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 play here is actually a uh, a tang shenzu play so we, we've we've discussed yeah. his other play uh, several times budanting uh the peony pavilion also known as Re return of the soul Right, and so this one is another one of his, maybe a, a slightly lesser known one of his plays. Apparently, part of a a group of works called the Lin Chuan Simeng, the the Four Dreams of Lin Chuan. Um, mm -hmm. and that kind of yeah, that reinforces this yeah this connection between um, these works and, and you know, life is a dream. That kind of metaphor, that kind of um, ideology. Yeah. So, in that play, it's quite 
it's quite interesting as a as an as a story. Um, there's a character called uh, Chun Yu Fun, uh, and it's set in the Tang Dynasty, as so much seems to be. And he has he's a kind of drunkard, um, um, and to celebrate his birthday, they have a party underneath a what's called a um, Huai Shu, a scholar tree, I think. And he falls asleep drunk, um, and he dreams that he is awakened by uh, a carriage outside which takes him through a hole in the floor by the scholar tree to another world known as uh, Da Huai Anguo, the peaceful land of the great scholar tree. Uh, there he's conveyed to the emperor uh, and becomes lord of a region called uh, Nanka, the mm. southern branch, which he, he rules for 20 years. In that time he becomes you know, greatly admired by the emperor and beloved by the people and has five sons and two daughters. And at the end of that 20-year period, they're suddenly invaded by the Tan Luo nation, Tan Luo Guo. And our main character, Chun Yu Fun, has to lead the army. Um, he's repeatedly defeated. He loses the confidence of the emperor. And he's expelled from this land. Um, and he's carried back out of the land to where he was sleeping um, in this carriage. On returning, he sees himself sleeping in bed. He realizes it was all a dream, and he kind of like awakens with a start. And so, on waking, he tells his friends the story, and remarkably, they don't dismiss it as kind of the insane ravings of a drunkard. Uh, they go out into the garden, and there, by the scholar tree, they find a great ant's nest. And one of the big branches of the ant's nest points directly south. And so, this is the the southern branch mm. that he's been ruling for twenty years in his dream. And so, yeah. The, it's like all of the aspirations and ambitions of humans are not merely a dream, but they are, you know, in the grand scheme of things, just like so many ants, all kind of small and insignificant, I guess. And so, yeah, absolutely. The sequence is the rise to power, the achievement of great success, and then the recognition that it's all illusory and transient, really. Mm. And so, and so grandmother Jia sort of senses this and it like disturbs her a little bit so various people i guess stick around to watch the plays some go home while they're settling down to watch the plays um they receive some gifts from the family of general feng so we mentioned the the son feng ziying um whose party value had gone to in the previous chapter and so hearing that they've gone to pay to make an offering at this temple, they've sent various gifts of like delicious food, uh, delicious kind of dishes for them to eat. And then before long, various other people begin sending tribute and coming by to pay their, you know, best wishes and things. So what started out as I suppose it was intended to be a kind of low key affair actually becomes something rather kind of mm -hmm. grander and more serious. So various people stay, but quite a few of them go home, right. including Ayu um, and Dayu, right? And you know, by now we get a sense that he is furious at uh, Abbot Zhang's talk of um, finding a, you know, a suitable match for him, right? Uh, in marriage, rather. Yeah, he's he's not happy about that at all. There's a sense that nobody uh, is able to guess why he's angry, um, which maybe is an an indication that. Uh, it's not simply Bao Yu who is alienated from other individuals, but he, they also are kind of alienated from him in a little bit. Like, 
that should have been obvious based on the events of the day that that's what would have bothered him. And so the fact that nobody except maybe Dayu could guess that um, speaks to, in my opinion, kind of a, a mutual misunderstanding that's going on. I, I think there is also maybe just a hint of the teenage sense of like, nobody understands how I feel, you know, nobody understands how, how hard right, it is. Right, right. And so, yeah, I'll debating in what great detail, because we're, we're, we're coming upon another classic uh, Baoyu-Daiyu feud. And I was like debating how on the podcast we are to represent that, whether we want to like, I don't think it's entirely necessary to uh, trace out, you know, this like micro dialectic. You know, it, it becomes very like science of logic, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. In, in it's like, in it's like yeah. levels of reflexivity. I think we can go through it, read relevant bits of the Hawks, uh, talk about it in general terms, and if there's anything in the Chinese we want to bring up, do that as well. Okay. Yeah, and maybe and maybe just give impressions. Uh, I think one thing to just mention before we start is that, um, so while Baoyu is furious about. Um, Abbot Zhang talking about marriage. Dayu, meanwhile, has become kind of sunstroked. So, as we mentioned before, it's, it's very hot weather and mm -hmm. it kind of manifests itself in several different ways. In this case, she's caught a little bit too much of the sun, so she's bedridden and she has recently taken some kind of, um, I guess, some kind of remedy, some kind of medicine to hopefully make her feel a bit better. Oh man, the medicine again. So, what happens in this argument? Okay, so. Let's see if I can reconstruct this. He wants her to understand why he is upset, but he's not willing to tell her that. And mm -hmm. she she has kind of this, she's doing the same thing where she wants him to acknowledge why she's upset, uh, but neither is willing to like uh, directly um, ask for what they, like what they want. And so there's just kind of this like, it's like they're dancing and they can't decide which foot to to start on. Um, <laughs> they're 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 stuck, kind of. Uh, it's like almost like you know when you're like if you're in a hallway and you're trying to avoid somebody and they swerve left and but you also swerve right, and then and they swerve they swerve right you swerve left you know there's, there's two those are kind of conflicting metaphors but you, you see what I'm, no I know what you mean yeah yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think that's right. It's kind of like mutual uh, undoing of each other's actions. Yeah, the, the basis of the argument is quite small, right? It's, she's feeling unwell, so she's bedridden and forced to stay home. But <clears throat> she says to him, well, why don't you go back and watch some of the plays? There's you know, no reason to just stick around here. And he's annoyed because she doesn't know why he is upset, namely because the abbot made these comments about marriage that kind of rubbed him up the wrong way. And so he says, oh, well, it's all been a mistake, you know. I, knowing you has been a waste if it's all just going to be like this, you know, if you clearly don't mm -hmm. understand me. And she says, well, that's hardly surprising, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't have this special gold locket to match your jade um, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, so she's kind of needling him about the thing which, unbeknownst to her, is playing most on his mind at the time. Like marriage and his future kind of partner but she's also revealing i guess her own insecurity about 
not being in a sense the kind of ordained or or yeah chosen chosen match for him mm-hmm. um and he's upset in turn that he thought he had like you know he, he swore an oath uh which he, he makes a big deal of like you know i swore an oath that this golden jade business uh doesn't mean anything to me you know but so you bring it up again that well I, apparently you didn't take my oath seriously you know uh Mm-hmm. Maybe you, maybe you even want me to die, which is again, their like their conversations are always like, like one or two references away from death, uh, that's, which is kind of funny. Um, it's interesting that there's no discussion whatsoever of the fact that both of them have Jade in their name. Wouldn't that trump this like these locket business? They're both Jades. Isn't that something you can work on? I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean. That's not, never even never, not even once that mentioned. I wonder if it's a part of this like this system where you know like Jade can't attract Jade. That's like again, if it's like if you're playing rock paper scissors and both, it's rock and rock. It's it magnets. Mean right. Anything you know? Uh, um, you mentioned before that one of the problems is it's like when one goes left, the other goes left, and when one goes right, the other goes right. Almost like yeah, when you when you meet somebody on the, you're walking down the street and you. You both kind of try and shuffle out the other's way, and you keep going in the same direction and blocking. Um, and it's quite well kind of captured in this phrase, which in, in the Hawks is, when false meets false, the truth will oft times out. Um, which in the <coughs> in the Chinese is, ru zi liang jia, xiang feng, zhong you yi zhen. So, yeah, when two falses meet, uh, in the end there will be one truth. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's kind of describing the thing that you mentioned. Of course, But also, yeah. it's playing on that jia, jian, um, like false, true, real, illusory. I was trying to figure out the implications of that statement. I guess the, both of them are unwilling to just come out with it. Uh, and maybe the, the accusations are false. That's what's going on. Yeah. So they're both insecure. They're... they're both making false accusations, and that's the form of appearance of their true uh, love for each other. Yeah, that's one way to read it, I think. Yeah, you can see from the fact that they're both being yeah. false with one another that there's a there's a true feeling at the heart of it. There, there is quite this, to me, kind of interesting part where we actually get to kind of hear all of their thoughts. So even though no words pass between them. For this quite long section, you kind of hear what's going on in each of their internal monologue, um, which I think we've kind of covered the 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 substance of, but which to me is interesting. Just as a, I feel like it's a relatively uncommon narrative technique, perhaps of, um, or or it's a maybe comparatively modern uh, narrative technique. I guess is yes. I I had the same reaction. It seemed uh, like surprisingly uh sophisticated yeah. like psychologically sophisticated yes. um maybe for the time period so they're stuck in this kind of um almost like cycle of um you know faint and counterfeint in kind of like emotional terms like they're they're kind of there's a kind of shadow play they're dancing around each other um and no mm-hmm. one's willing to really go all in and make their feelings clear and so instead, the kind of frustration that Bao Yu is feeling ends up displaced into the jade that he wears around his neck. 
Yeah. It's been a while since he's tried to destroy the Jade. Last time was when? Chapter... Was it the first time three? they meet? Yeah, chapter three. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. This is like a, a new attempt <laughs> at uh, smashing the Jade. Uh, but it's a, it's a s- strong Jade. Yeah. Funnily enough, the first... The, the last time it happened, it was also in... It was also caused by Dayu. It was when they first met. She, she made some passing comment, which really set him off, and he was infuriated by this. He was infuriated that she doesn't have a jade. And it made him feel strange and kind of out of place. You know, if she's so beautiful and she doesn't have a jade, what what good is having a jade? Yeah. <laughs> that was basically the logic. <laughs> um, and, and so this is a little bit different. He, he simply wants to, he wants to be done with the, the jade. Uh, he wants to simply be, you know... The boy named after a jade, not the boy with the jade. He wants to, like, yeah, uh, transcend this association. But no luck. It um, it doesn't smash. Um, Dayu has a comment like, uh, "You should uh, you should smash me to pieces instead." Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and they start crying. You know, um, a classic. And everyone, a few maids rush in to see what's going on. Uh, they try to console him. They mentioned that, uh, well, here's this nice um, weaving that uh, it's like Dayu had, had weaved for Baoyu a, a nice... Kind of cord. Like a cord, yeah, yeah. For, for holding the jade. Um, yeah. In her emotion, she snatches it and cuts it up. Uh, yeah, before anyone can stop her. And also at this point, uh, she does her... One of her classic responses is that she vomits a lot. <laughs> um, and, and so she kind of like vomits a little bit. Yeah, the 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 medicine she had eaten for her sunstroke now comes right back up, and unfortunately, and it's the it's the medicine again, allegedly, and and the medicine comes back up. <laughs> it didn't work, and so it becomes really like kind of real for a moment there. It's just pure liquid at this point. She's she's crying, but also vomiting, and I, I don't know if that's. <laughs> I, don't, I I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that, I, if that counts. I think it's a level of like symbolic. It's over. It's overflowing with meaning. Let's say. Yeah. Um, yeah. But before long, yeah, not just Baoyu and Dayu are crying, but then also uh, Aroma and Nightingale, the other two maids, have come in, uh, are both them- themselves crying as well, um, just overcome <laughs> with the emotion of the scene, I guess. And uh, in the meantime, a passing servant has seen this commotion and has sent off for Lady Wang. Um, uh, that's Baoyu's mother and grandmother Jia, that there's some terrible commotion. And so they both rush in, and Baoyu and Dayu are, are both kind of uh, ashamed, I suppose, and so neither of them says anything. And so the, the presumption of guilt falls upon the shoulders of these two maids who are very thoroughly, um, uh, I guess, abused. <laughs> they're, 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 given a very, uh, they're given a very harsh dressing down for allowing things to get out of hand, I suppose. Right. Yeah. So, like in the classic ending, is that it's all it's all blamed on the maids, who are like completely uninvolved, basically. Which is just uh, it's like a tale as old as time itself, isn't it? It'll be so familiar to so many uh-huh. people. Um, the the downtrodden are the ones who are blamed for the idiocy of these rich young fools. But yeah, you know, it's an outlet for. Yeah, like uh, it's like you have this like energy, and it has to go somewhere. 
uh, and so it's always going to be projected onto the uh, the weakest. Um, Those who can't hit back, yeah. And, and so they leave. <laughs> what else happens? They leave things in a very, well, they leave in a very bad temper, uh, both Balu and Dayu. So they're they have not yet kind of resolved things or made up. Um, now the next day it was uh, Shuapan's birthday. Because the two of them haven't reconciled, neither of them attends. And so Grandmother Jia <coughs> is very sad about this fact. And she she finds herself kind of lamenting this, you know. So she says, and this is from the Hawks, she says, I'm a miserable old sinner, she grumbled. <laughs> it must be my punishment for something I did wrong in a past life to have to, have to live with such a pair of obstinate addle-headed little geese. I'm sure there isn't a day goes by without their giving me some fresh cause for anxiety. It must be fate. That's what it says in the proverb, proverb after all. That's what it says in the proverb, after all. Tis fate brings foes and loves together. Mm. And then she goes on to say, you know, oh, well, I'll be dead soon and then you'll regret things. <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, Lord, Lord, take me now. Like <laughs> all of that kind of thing. Although we should talk about um, the the proverb that she uh, cites there, because yeah. I, I think there's some kind of like hidden meanings that maybe aren't completely um, fleshed out in, in the translation. All right, so it's bu shi yuan jia, bu zhu More literally, it's something like if they weren't yuan jia, they wouldn't uh, come to heads. Right? Yeah. Um, so what are yuan jia? Well, well, that's that's the thing. So so yuan jia can mean either um, one's enemy, or like one's one's sweetheart, or even one's like destined love, right? And so the last sense, you know, is what most clearly um, applies to Bao Yu and Dai Yu, right? The whole idea is that they're like predestined to uh, to come together, right? Even if it is, they are yeah. these kind of like often, you know, verbal adversaries. Yeah. So we we talked about that character Yuan before in other contexts, including in the dream sequence in chapter five. It has a sense of like karmic or like yeah, fateful, fatefulness about it. Right. So as Yuan Jia, Yuan Jia, they're like fated people, you know. So absolutely, you can understand how it encompasses a sense of both being enemies and lovers this kind of got me thinking actually uh, uh, just more generally about how we don't really i think in our like modern times quote-unquote we seem to um discount our like almost libidinal attachment not only to the people that we like obviously love but also to our like our enemies in a way there's there's something going on there where like Maybe in the in the era of like superheroes and these kind of like uh, manichaean like black white divisions, uh, we're sort of lying to ourselves about how like how conflict actually works and why where like these like energies go in a conflict and, and what does it mean to really like not simply you know not like somebody or be indifferent the difference between indifference and loathing and all these issues of like resentment and 
there, there's something like deeper going on there uh, that maybe like this thing is kind of hinting at a little bit, right? And, and so we see even in the case of Bao Yu and Dai Yu, we see this um, negative energy between them, uh, and how it's you know, also it corresponds with affection and love and and. But I would even expand expand that out a little bit, and and start to think about you know what does it mean? Why do we need enemies? What, what do these enemies do for us? You know, kind of if we want to take the uh, the Hegelian route, you know, what's the point of what's what's really the relationship between self and other that kind of thing? So that's that's kind of that's hinted at here. I thought a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. They wouldn't be at each other's throats in this way were it not their destiny. There's as much as there is love, there's also hatred. Um, and it's funny how often those two things go hand in hand. Uh, and actually, upon hearing this for the first time, the, the text indicates that Bao Yu and uh, Dai Yu are sort of hit as if with a kind of a, a like a Chan sudden glimpse of reality, a sudden perception. They're really struck by the truth of it, aren't they? Uh, and then there's a, a nice poetic line which returns again to these images from uh from chapter five in in Nyad's house one to the wind made moan in green delights one to the moon complained uh and that reminds me a lot of the the image from chapter five of you know the moon in the water and the flower in the mirror right um this kind of uh being at a distance but being connected, being of one kind of heart, uh... and I think that's I think that's right. You know, they're they're here. They're um, there's a little couple which follows it, right? Which is uh, the two people were in separate places, but they're something like their hearts beat as one. Right. You know? Their hearts were there was a meeting of the hearts. Um, so we know that despite all of this, all of this conflict, all of this constant kind of exhausting conflict between them <laughs> which shows no sign of dissipating um there's real sympathy of feeling between them it just it remains for them to actually discover it you know and and so finally um i, I think it's aroma who tries to urge bao yu to be the bigger person let's say and make amends yeah, she says, you're always saying that when you hear of a quarrel between a, a boy and a girl, that the boy has been monstrous and should apologize. And yet here you mm -hmm. are, not heeding your own advice. Um, so she she encourages him to go make an apology. But whether or not he does, we shall find out in the next chapter. And that's going to be the, the double fifth day uh, in the traditional calendar, uh, sometimes associated with the, the Dragon Boat Festival. Um, so I wonder if that's a good time for them to, is that a good time to, uh, to be reuniting? Oh, we shall have to see. Okay. I, um, yeah. I don't want to give away any spoilers, <laughs> but yeah, next time we will look at chapter 30. Balchai speaks of a fan and castigates her deriders. Charmant scratches a chang and mystifies a beholder. Okay, this has been another uh, exciting installation of rereading the stone. 
Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at uh, RereadingStone and on Facebook at facebook.com slash rereadingthestone. Uh, so until next time, uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.